Welcome to Cyanotopia, a podcast celebrating cyanotype and the artists who use cyanotype in their art making. Each episode features a long-form interview with an artist who uses cyanotype in their art making. The artists talk about what they make, why they make it, and how they make their work. My name is Marilyn Krasner, and I make each episode of this podcast. I wanted to make a podcast about cyanotype because I have been having an intense love affair with cyanotype, and I think it's natural when love is still fresh to want to talk about it a lot. My mom died unexpectedly in April 2021. If you've been through a big grief, you might understand my need for distraction, and I am very grateful that I discovered cyanotype a month or so after my mom died. Cyanotype has been my companion during this time, a lifesaver for me, a brain saver, a joy maker. I'm also a mom and I love that I can show my kids that art doesn't have to be stay within the lines perfect. It is beautiful even when it's uncontrolled, messy, and water gets everywhere. And this podcast is my way of honoring cyanotype and a gift to the cyanotype community and the creative community all over the world. Even if you're not using cyanotype, I think the interviews will resonate because the artists I speak to in these episodes are so interesting. If you want to support the artists you hear on this podcast, please refer to the show notes and find out how to buy their art. I've listed their websites and social media information, along with a list of links to artists, books, and websites that they mentioned during their interviews. You can find the show notes for each episode in your podcast app or on my website, www.marilynkrasner.com. That's M-A-R-O-L-Y-N-K-R-A-S-N-E-R.com. And please keep making your art. The world needs your art. And it's okay to make art even when times are really hard because you're a human and really... It's one of the best parts about being a human being, I think. In March 2022, I was on the street, on the street making art for an event called Wellington Parking Day. And I was printing cyanotype on fabric and hoping people would come and talk to me about what I was doing. And one keen young man came up to talk to me and told me he studied, you know, he worked with cyanotype in art school in the UK and told me about his friend, one of his best mates, Ed Carr, who makes films using cyanotype processes, which in that moment I really couldn't conceptualize what he was talking about. So I wanted to talk to Ed for this podcast and along with the filmmaking process, that he explained. He also talked about the amazingly awesome sustainable darkroom and the ecological seeds of his art making and his inspiration. And it's a really awesome conversation. And thank you, Hamish, for introducing us. I am definitely making plans to have a little backyard wetlands for my cyanotype waste. And I'm for sure going to try anthotypes. Enjoy the episode. My name is Ed Carr, and I am a photographic artist from the North York Moors in the UK. My practice tends to adapt um, sustainable photographic processes or alternative photographic processes into animation. So typically, I'm known for adapting cyanotype, uh, lumen prints, and other photographic processes into animated works about our relationship to the ecological crisis, the sixth mass extinction of life, and typically the trauma that comes as a product of living in this time of crisis. I'm also the founder of the Northern Sustainable Darkroom, and that is a non-profit photographic research facility based in Leeds. Most recently, we established a darkroom garden where we grow plants to be used as sustainable alternatives to traditional processes. And I run, run that alongside Hannah Fletcher and Alice Kazanev. So yeah, <laughs> that's kind of me as an artist at the moment, I guess. So how long have you been working with cyanotype? Um, let me think. I'm not that old, but when I think about that question, it makes me feel old. <laughs> um, 
So I, well, I guess if you don't mind, I can, I suppose I can talk about how I kind of got to working with Cyanotype um, because I didn't really study photography at school. I mean, I obviously did a degree in photography, but I mean, like I started doing digital photography of dogs because <laughs> um, I used to work with dogs. Um, and then I progressed to landscape photography um, I think I found with the landscape photography that I was um, still doing it digitally and I became like really obsessed with like this digital image that was like on the back of the camera as opposed to um, feeling like very much alive and like embodied in the environment like I didn't feel as if I was like a living being interacting with an ecosystem when I was making my art or making my photography instead I just felt um like it was this really extractive kind of um uh, abstracted process where I was just creating this like digital representation of something which was like essentially false and so then I studied a degree in wildlife photography um for a bunch of different reasons um and during that degree I was like introduced to analog processes um, so obviously you start off, you know, like here's how you use like a 35 mil camera. And I remember <laughs> um, trying to work out how to shoot film and all that stuff and developing it myself, which was a whole journey. And then I started experimenting with contact printing in the dark room. So like contact printing um, negatives and digital negatives onto, you know, Ilford darkroom paper. And then that just kind of like broadened my uh, kind of horizons into alternative processes. And I was given a copy of, um, you may have heard of this book or your listeners may have heard of this book, Jill Enfield's Guide to Alternative Photographic Processes. And when I was studying, like um, that was like my Bible, like <laughs> I've still got it in my studio um, all these years later. So this was around like 2016. So like six years later, I've still got it and it's like covered in cyanotype and antitype and all different types of, you know, it's very well used is what I'm saying. And that book like opened me up to all different alternative processes and especially cyanotype. And so the first cyanotypes I ever did were photograms, you know, like laying um, leaves and all that kind of the very classic cyanotypes that started out with Anna Atkins. And then um, from there, I started to think, well, how can I make like animations out of these processes or how can I um, animate with these processes? My first idea was to animate with lumen prints and then the ease and the familiarity of Cenotype, I just um, then started to adapt it into animation. So I started off doing very few actual still Cenotype images, just like ones of my dog <laughs> and some photograms, and then immediately progressed into animating with Cenotype. Um, in my film A Guide to British Trees which started in 2017 and I finished it in 2018. Um, the entire film's animated with a bunch of different photographic processes like 35 mil uh, lumen prints, uh, shocking film of electricity, burying film in seaweed, cyanotypes, um, all different types of photographic processes and that was the first time I ever animated with cyanotype which is i guess what i'm kind of known for within the alternative process community today so that was in like 2017 2018 kind of time in what about six six to eight years that's that's quite a trajectory from getting started to i think i read one headline that said that you've probably made the first cyanotype film uh so as i said like when I started, so I always wanted to make like videos, not well films, but not necessarily what I would make now, which is considered like moving image art, which I didn't even know existed when I was doing my undergrad. It was only until I did my master's in moving image that I realized that that was a whole branch of like uh, fine art. Um, but yeah, I'd always wanted to make films. And so I guess I remember the first time I ever thought about animating with photographic processes are like analog photographic processes and I was like walking uh my dog actually and I was thinking how I could animate lumen prints which is where um you use darkroom paper um but you do a contact print and then take it outside as opposed to using an enlarger so very similar to the cyanotype process in that you're using uv light um but with lumen prints um you get this kind of like purpley uh blue kind of goldish effects that you because you're printing it in the uv instead of using an enlarger 
And then, like I said, from there, I, I started animating with um, Cyanotype. And I guess um, there's a number of like reasons as to why I do it or why I'm like inspired to animate with photographic processes and especially Cyanotype. Cyanotype, um, I'd always wanted to make a Cyanotype, entirely Cyanotype uh, animation. Um, ever since I'd done the little clips that were in the film, A Guide to British Trees, which I made um, at university, but I'd never really had like the time or uh, the money to, to freely kind of do that. And so when I was like presented the opportunity to do that um, with the music label and make the music video for Tycho Jones, um, I just kind of took that opportunity, even though the people at the music label and um all the people involved didn't know what sanotype was um so when i said to them oh, i'll print it all as a sanotype and i showed them little clips that i'd done in the past with um with uh the clouds and all that stuff from a guide to British trees they were like oh yeah cool but i don't think they realized like how much of an actual time and effort it would it was so you know like it took me three months to make that music video and um it did get to a point where they were kind of <laughs> Like, yeah, how's, you know, like very, you know, very like British and kind of <laughs> nice way. Like, you know, how's it going? Like, when's this video going to be finished? Um, but I guess like the conceptual reasons behind using Sanotype for that were, um, which was the first time I ever made an entire Sanotype video, um, was firstly, um, so it would look like it would have that kind of handmade aesthetic that I think is like impossible to reproduce digitally. Of course, you can have like digital effects placed on top of footage to make it look analog or what have you. But I think really printing it with cyanotype with the texture of the paper and all the scratches and the thumbprints and all that kind of stuff, like each frame is very visually uh, distinct and unique. Um, and I just think that's something that's impossible to replicate digitally. And so that was one of my main motivations for doing it. Obviously, the color blue <laughs> is important um to people using sanotype um and also for me and for the musician Tycho because um you know it's his favorite color and it's kind of associated with his um first musical release and his album and just generally like him as an artist like he uses a lot of blue so obviously that was an addition with sanotype being blue and then beyond that as well like from a so um I run an organization called the sustainable darkroom and we try and use processes that are kind of uh, low toxic or um, considered like sustainable compared to other printmaking or photographic processes, whether it's like cyanotype, chlorophyll types, anthotypes, um, making developers out of plants, um, which is what we do a lot of, you know, fixing in salt water instead of using uh, general fixative. Um, recycling our wastewater from washing sanotypes. We have, um, for the moment, we have someone who's filtering sanotype water and collecting the um, Prussian blue residue. So, with that in mind, I wanted to also use sanotype because of its kind of familiarity as um, with the photographic community as being a more sustainable process um, compared to others. So, yeah, a number of different reasons, um, but I guess <laughs> to like not to over explain it, I guess it's just something that creatively I'd always wanted to do. And it was, it's an aesthetic that I um, really love. So I'm glad I got the opportunity to do it. And now it's all, I, it's uh, all I ever seem to do. So maybe uh, it'd be good to have a break from just doing sanitite videos all the time. What is the process when you're making the video? This is like, see, this is like sanitite geek sound. I think maybe that's the thing you're like, people don't want to hear this, but I think they do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's very, I suppose, for the Sanotype geek uh, audience, <laughs> it's very, I mean, you'll know already that Sanotype's uh, easy, um, like easy to teach and easy for like children and adults to do at least on a kind of um, level compared to other photographic processes and alternative processes. But it's very, as a process of animation, it's very labor intensive, um, very uh, time consuming process because essentially what I do is I will um, start off with a digital edit of the footage. So that means, and this surprises people, because sometimes people think I've shot it, which would be absolutely insane, but I suppose you could do it this way. Sometimes people think I've shot it on 16 millimeter or eight millimeter and then contact printed the negatives 
from the 16 millimeter onto cyanotype and then scan those. But no, I don't do it like that. That would be, uh, I mean, you could do it like that. And I've, I've seen people that have tried stuff like that, but um, you're not going to get the same quality. You're not going to get the same level of control as you do if you shoot it digitally first and then do a digital edit and then print that edit as cyanotype. So with the music video, with the Adidas video that I just did, uh, the Vivian Westwood, um, all those kind of cyanotype videos that you'll see on my Instagram or on the internet, those all exist as a kind of plain digital full color HD edit. And then I break them down into individual um, JPEGs, so individual images using some uh, software called Adapter, but also you can export into JPEGs on Premiere or Final Cut or whatever kind of video editing software that you're using. Um, and then I turn those individual images. So for example, um, if you're wanting to print at 12 frames per second, I'll split the footage into 12 frames per second, and then you have to print 12 uh, cyanotype stills per second of footage. So I'll then <laughs> export all those images, turn them into digital negatives on Lightroom, export them as negatives, print them out as digital negatives, either on acetate or tracing paper or vellum or even regular paper, which you can then oil if you want to be more sustainable and more biodegradable. Um, and then I will print it as cyanotype and then re-digitize the footage um, and then animate it back together. So it's kind of this like holistic um, circular process of digital to analog to digital. Does that make sense? <laughs> Yeah, it totally makes sense. Yeah, I was. Um, and so, when you're doing the actual printing, um, are you using a UV, a, you know, UV light box or something, or do you go into the sun? Or uh, so it depends on the project, really. Like, if I mean, and also the time of year, obviously. But like, um, so some of the stuff I've done, um, which will never has never been so that. Music video was done using UV, but that's because where I live um, is in the north of England, which is not famous for its <laughs> sunny weather, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, in that case, I did initially try printing the music video using the sun, and I was like stood outside <laughs> at the start of the project um, with like a big piece of glass and like, you know, four cyanotypes in it, like exposing them in the sun. And I just had this like overwhelming feeling of like, dread like oh my god how am i gonna do like 600 of these um prints in the sun in march in the north of england so then i contacted a local screen printers this that was based in this charity called map charity in leeds which helps out um kids that have come from difficult home lives and it turns out <laughs> for some reason this charity had an enormous um uv bed in the basement that they didn't use they just they got it for free off ebay or someone donated it but it was all powered up and working and i managed to do 20 cyanotypes at once using this uv bed um so for that project i used the uv bed but for smaller projects i've used the sun um depending on the time of year and then other projects i've used like a home uv setup that i built myself out of like some like fluorescent tubes um and some bits of glass obviously practicing like for anyone that's listening um definitely practice um due diligence with uv light like you don't want it to be exposed to you directly so make sure you like cover it or put it in a box or whatever but yeah it really depends um on the time of year and the project like the most recent thing that i did was a video for adidas um and that was um using the vacuum uv bed again just for kind of speed and you get much better <laughs> much better results because of the vacuum mainly so yeah it really depends but generally artificial light sources when it's a commercial job um for a number of reasons as you can imagine so people often think when they read like five thousand frames they think i'm printing like a4 frames <laughs> which would be insane um and just way over the top so what I do is I print nine frames per sheet of A4. So if you have the Tyco was 24 frames per second, three and a half minutes. So that was about five, 6,000 frames. And then obviously you divide that by nine, which ended up being about 600 um, A4 sanotypes. 
so really if you want to work the way i do it is it's like a really simple um kind of simple maths um typically i'll do videos at 12 frames per second now because after doing the 24 frames per second of the taiko video it kind of scarred me for life <laughs> it was also kind of unnecessary like to have it that high of a frame rate was animation so now i'll have 12 frames per second which means for about you get a second of footage for like one and a third pieces of paper so um with the um adidas video for example that was about 450 frames um so divided by 12 that's about 40 odd 40 something prints um so yeah that's how it works it's not um i'm not doing one a4 per frame that would be crazy <laughs> although i have seen people who've um tried to like have like tagged me on instagram um after seeing my process and have been doing it that way and i'm like bro no, don't do it like that um but yeah that's how it works kind of how has your relationship with cyanotype changed since you started working with that? I didn't really do, I mean, I did a couple, but I didn't really do any cyanotypes between making a guide to British trees, the film, my undergrad final film um, with the cyanotype clouds, the very brief kind of like 30 second section of cyanotype that's in that until really the music video. Like I did a couple of things on my masters, but I guess my relationship with cyanotype really changed after it became like my main practice and commercial element of my practice as well as an artist i mean i still put it into my uh more creative or non-commercial projects my the way it really has changed is that it's just kind of um <laughs> taken over my life um in a way that i never foresaw it happening like i knew that the what we were doing with the music video was going to be um like you know i'm not saying it would like i i thought it would get some attention for the process but i didn't realize how significant it would be within photography and the alternative photography community so really it just it completely transformed my life as an artist and my career and all that kind of stuff but also it is it has become like um to the point now where it's it's been a year of me doing like nearly exclusively sanitite projects and wanting to like <laughs> do um do other stuff now so really now i'm trying to focus on developing the anthotype side of my practice um i know this podcast is about sanitypes but um anthotypes if uh, for anyone who's listening doesn't know are a process where you um just use plants so essentially you like grind up plant material uh, lots of different plants it doesn't and nothing specific and then um um like extract the liquids so like you know strain it through a cheesecloth or whatever so you have this like um kind of uh green or purple or yellow or blue liquid or whatever plant you've used um it's just mixed with water or pure alcohol and you paint it on paper and print it in the sun using a digital positive instead of a digital negative so similar to an, a sanitite process um but you know obviously not using uh, chemistry so yeah i guess i've tried to um i'm trying to like not move away from <laughs> cyanotype since it all became really popular but i'm trying to like broaden my practice a bit because i don't want to be just like completely pigeonholed um as this like guy who does cyanotype animations although i love i mean i love working with cyanotype and i love seeing the image appear in the water and i love um imagining what or not even imagining, but realizing certain types of footage or clips of footage or images into cyanotype that I have in my archive or that I've edited. Like when I made the Adidas video, video um, it, it looked cool as the digital edit, but when I printed it as a cyanotype, I was like, okay, like this is it, this, this looks awesome. And like seeing all those stills. So I'm still like very much in love with it, but I do um, in a way kind of want to open it up a bit. The other day we were, cause we have a, with the sustainable dark room we have a dark room garden so essentially it's a bunch of planters big planters you know like six seven feet long where we grow plants to be used in the dark room as like sustainable alternatives and um we recently were clearing them out over the because of the winter obviously they got kind of battered being in the north england and um we for we got a bunch of chickweed i don't know if you've heard of chickweed 
um but it's like a kind of like quite common weed and then i ground it up and it turns out it's like a super vibrant like green um and turned it into amphotype emulsion so i'm i'm looking forward to kind of <laughs> seeing if it prints well as a antitype you should try that out as well like with any if you have like an abundance of a really leafy green weed um if you grind it up with uh in a mortar and pestle or a blender with some like pure alcohol um and then strain it you might be able to like use it as an alternative emulsion and not just the, the photograms or even both um so yeah <laughs> um yeah definitely i'm definitely gonna try that yeah yeah so i want to talk a bit about so do you think you would have started the sustainable darkroom regardless of your experience with cyanotype? Was that something that you were already interested in or? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say uh, cyanotype exclusively like led me down the path to working with the sustainable darkroom. Um, but I would say alternative processes um, in general, and my engagement with alternative processes definitely made me start to think about, you know, what was actually materially in the photographic equipment that we were using and the photographic uh, substances we were using and how, you know, the kind of material past, present and future of these objects and how it affects ecosystems and how it affects the environment. So I think, and this is something that's kind of key to the way we work in the sustainable darkroom is um, our relationship with materials and our actually physical working practice with materials, how that then informs our understanding of ecology. So instead of trying to like understand the environment and ecology first from a theoretical perspective, instead kind of like turning on its head a little and understanding it through the physical things that you're doing and analyzing um, the kind of networks and structures around them. So yeah, definitely like working with sanotype and washing in the water and like getting your hands dirty and all that stuff was a much more engaged um, reality of, uh, of, of working artistically and then starting to think like, how is this impacting uh, the environment and the ecosystems around me? But my actual involvement with um, the Sustainable Darkroom came mostly from, so I wrote a paper because um, I kind of very occasionally now since I've been doing so much sanitite work, but I um, in the past have wrote um, a few papers on like photography and sustainable darkroom um theory and practice and one of them that i wrote for my master's thesis is called the ecology of grain and that's a, like an environmental and ethical assessment of animal gelatin in photographic films so if anyone who's listening doesn't know most commercial film stocks um use bovine so cow gelatin as a binding agent for the silver halides which make film light sensitive um and that isn't really a plant-based replacement commercially and so still today, they're using the um, animal gelatin. So anyway, I did like the first ever environmental and ethical impact assessment of using gelatin in film. And then from there, I became involved with the Sustainable Darkroom um, through a residency program. And now, obviously, I'm one of the um, co-runners alongside Hannah Fletcher and Alice Kazanov. But I think with um, Cyanotype and what's important about Cyanotype is that it is um in that context at least it's gelatin free i suppose so as opposed to like liquid light and some other alternative processes it doesn't obviously use um animal gelatin i mean you can mix sanitite with gelatin to coat it on glass and stuff but you can just as well do that with plant-based gelatins when it comes to sanitite so in a way i suppose indirectly or not indirectly but it's definitely informed my work with sustainable darkroom, but it's not um, it's not the sole reason for me being involved with the sustainable darkroom, I guess. Right, right. So I'm interested in what you said about flipping the perspective on ecology on its head, like or backwards. Can you talk about that a bit more? Like, can you give me a specific example of something? Yeah. So what i mean by that is essentially that um when so i guess like the traditional method of learning um is 
that it starts out, you know, with like the theory um, around environment and ecology, and then that affects your um, perceptions and then you change your behavior. But really at the sustainable dark room, what we're trying to do is to approach it with like a materials first approach. So instead of like, you know, starting off with the theory and the academic perspectives and all that stuff instead we're like start off with like okay so how are you working and the way you're working and the way you're engaging with things and being like present and aware of all the different um like materials whether they're man-made or non-human um entities like the sun and the water or whatever and then looking at those and that the material networks and how it like affects the world around you a good good comparison really is with like local um food that the people there who like go whether you like volunteer a cooperative or whatever or whether it's like a local community gardens in that way you're like learning about your food and you're learning about your land and you're learning about like the all the different elements that are involved through the actual like tangible process and the physical process as opposed to through like an academic process that then informs your physical processes later. So the same with our photography, like, of course we have like the theoretical elements and stuff, but really like the way we encourage people to learn and understand um, about ecology and about photographic ecologies is through like an awareness of the way they work and like an awareness whilst they're working. So, you know, when you're washing a cyanotype or, you know um developing your film and thinking about like pouring the waste down the sink you're actually thinking it as you're kind of doing it and working and then hoping that that will inform your perspective of ecology later on does that make sense yeah yeah so instead of just letting the water run to wherever it's going to go and just think it's going to be okay or don't even think about it being mindful of every step yeah i think that's really important. I think a lot of people who make cyanotype um, hopefully are a bit tuned in, you know, to like, I think people who are doing it now are getting involved in the now and more, oh, this is like an eco-friendly, um, you know, that's kind of how it's marketed, but um, I'm not yeah. sure it is, so. <laughs> uh, we've done a bit of research, like we've asked like chemists uh, and, people who work with like water disposal and all that kind of stuff about cyanotype and whether it is like once you've developed it, whether it, how harmful it is. And um, I get the only waste um, compound that comes out in the water is like iron salts. And so iron salts like in that kind of quantity aren't harmful and obviously some um, plants and marine plants can actually benefit from iron salts. Um, so only like, I think on an extreme scale would cyanotype, um, be harmful to a water system, um, with the iron salts that are present, like it would have to be almost like pure cyanotype waste for it to be harmful. But also I know that obviously because you have um is it potassium ferrocyanide and that's a concern for people sometimes is like the cyanide component of that because obviously cyanide is poisonous um but i was actually <laughs> when the an article was written about the music video somebody commented saying that cyanide isn't sustainable and then somebody replied to that comment with like this huge <laughs> like um paragraph like disassembling why it is um, and then they were basically saying like the only time the cyanide is harmful in cyanotype when it's in its like raw pre-mixed um, form is if it's exposed to um, really high temperatures so like temperatures that you couldn't generate without like special equipment so like hundreds of degrees or if it's um, exposed to really strong acids so like you know like hydrochloric acid or something like that's so like pure acidic substance which would then release the cyanide um and create cyanide gas but because the cyanide is so tightly bound to the iron molecules in cyanotype it's nearly impossible for them to like naturally come apart 
And obviously once it's exposed and washed, the cyanide isn't present at all. So yeah, it's like, um, yeah, it's not like purely, um, I, don't, I don't know. I wouldn't say it's like a biodegradable process, like antitypes can be, um, but I wouldn't say from, at least from the research we've tried to do at the sustainable dark room, it's probably, it's definitely more sustainable than most photographic <laughs> processes. Um, so yeah. So since you've started looking into your process more and the materials you use, has your feeling about using cyanotype changed? Like you did say you were trying to, um, you were trying other things, but is it something that you feel like you will want to eventually move away from? Um, I think, I mean, it's difficult to like, for example, we, at the moment, like we have a resident um, at the dark. Uh, so we have, we do a residency program at the sustainable dark room and we have someone who's here at the moment and she's building a constructed wetlands, which is kind of, you know, like a natural wetland system. Um, she's building a constructed wetlands to filter the wastewater through. Um, so with that, basically, um, she's growing plants and then we put the darkroom water in there and then hopefully the, the specific types of plants that she grows in there will filter the impurities out and then you'll be left with kind of clean water that can be reused in the darkroom or put into the darkroom garden or whatever. So in like a long-term view of things, if with the research we're doing at the sustainable darkroom in terms of waste recycling, like we can find a way to completely eliminate iron salts from the wastewater and sanotype then I suppose it would be okay. But yeah, I think definitely like trying to um, reduce my use of sanotype um, and also really trying to move towards antitypes, but obviously antitypes are really dependent on the weather because they're not a UV process. They're a sunlight process because it's a bleaching process. So you need good weather. So maybe I need to move to a different um, part of the world to move my practice completely towards um antitypes but also i've been doing other stuff like combining cyanotype with other processes so like combining cyanotype with antitype um like the actual emulsions combining um cyanotype with lumen prints um yeah combining cyanotype with eco uh prints so also working with like combination processes as a way to like use less chemistry and um make it more interesting i suppose so I guess for two reasons, there's like the sustainability aspect and also just creatively, I think like I, I can't um, creatively just stick with sanotype forever, although I think it'll probably always be a part of my practice um, for sure. Artistically, and like as an artist, where are your inspirations at the moment for like the next year? Um, for your actual art, the actual imagery that you're creating? Um, so all my work is about um, the ecological crisis and our relationship to the ecological crisis and non-human species. And mainly, so I think a lot of um, environmental art and like ecological art will try and aestheticize um, statistics and try and almost like um, create like an aesthetic experience of scientific research. And obviously I think there is uh, something important about that, but I often also find that, that that kind of work can be difficult for people to relate to. And often as a consequence becomes like a bit uninteresting or it doesn't like emotionally affect people and then doesn't inspire people to change um because yeah like you know if you're thinking about a piece of work um that's about like glacial melting or insect extinction or i don't know loads of different topics that people on their day-to-day -day lives can't relate to and so when you see people trying to like aestheticize um graphs and stuff through through um art practice often it doesn't relate and it's difficult for people to connect to. So instead I try to like make work that's about the ecological crisis, but more about like an emotional experience of the ecological crisis. So often I'll try and like draw 
um, parallels of emotional experience with ecological experience. So the most recent film that I've done um, within my non-commercial practice is um, about butterflies and butterfly extinction and the threats to butterflies. But instead of doing it from a scientific perspective, I've also made the film about trauma and childhood trauma and the kind of intersection between personal trauma and ecological trauma of, you know, insects going extinct, which sounds really weird. But for me, it's um, definitely, at least I think, a more effective way to communicate what it actually feels like to live, live through crisis and like try and inspire people to uh, make um not like make personal changes like recycle or anything but be more engaged and involved and aware and active within the environmental crisis um so yeah that's the most recent thing i did uh upcoming projects that i'm trying to <laughs> get off the ground obviously i've talked about the antitype animations um i just did an application to do a project about plankton <laughs> and it's an idea i've had for a while but um, I don't know if you know, but like, so marine plankton, which are like the microscopic um, organisms in the ocean, they are responsible for 70% of oxygen on Earth. So way more than the rainforest or any of those kind of key ecologies that conservation organizations focus on. Um, and yet nobody really knows this and nobody really is aware of it. And obviously plankton are being um, threatened by um, pollution, ocean acidification, uh increasing temperatures etc cetera, etc cetera. but because they're so alien and so remote to us and so you know they're literally invisible to the human eye it's impossible for us to like relate to that situation and to really be motivated to do anything about it even though it's literally sustaining the oxygen on earth to keep us alive so i've been um so kind of like my next project that i'm trying to work on is that and this kind of it sounds crazy but like a plankton um ballet <laughs> so it's kind of a hybrid of like moving image using the processes of like cyanotype and water-based processes and like the kind of stuff i'm familiar for combined with like choreographed um performance based on the way kind of plankton um move and um exist in the world and then as well working with an orchestra to um uh try and mimic what sounds plankton might sound like or would sound like if we were able to hear them and have that accompanying so yeah all the works i have <laughs> that sounds kind of crazy when i explain it out loud but that's the next thing i'm trying to work on um so yeah all my projects are really inspired by the natural world and ecology and environmental um crisis but from a perspective of personal experience and um personal uh, emotions i guess did you say 70 percent yeah so generally considered to like recycle like 70% of the carbon dioxide into oxygen in our atmosphere. But because of um, various different factors, they're obviously um, threatened and being choked out, which is a huge issue. But also with plankton, they're really beautiful. Like if you look at like the electron microscope imaging of them or the like really old famous drawings by uh, Heckel, which are quite well known, plankton actually have these like really unique and like intricate forms um so i think as well like with the dance elements and the cyanotype elements trying to like um exemplify that and like their fragility through that instead of you know being like oh we need them because of oxygen instead just trying to like represent them for having you know right to exist um and a right to life because they do exist i guess <laughs> and for no reason you know not just because of like human utility i suppose it makes me curious about your um, ability to work with the, the subject matter and like, do you feel responsible to a responsibility? I grew up in a very rural, like countryside location, and I've always had a very strong connection to the natural world and the non-human world. Um, so like, for example, where I'm from, I don't know if, if, because a lot of your listeners might not be British, but there's like a thing called uh, there's like British fox hunting where like rich people like ride on horses and they wear like little jackets. You might have seen it in like, I don't know, Downton Abbey or something like that um, or whatever, like representation of it is uh, in the 
media but that actually happens where i live in my village and it's something that where i'm from people are very proud of but even I, when i was a kid i just never uh identified with it and i always thought it was kind of like wrong and stuff even when my family were saying that that no it's like this like tradition that has to happen in the countryside i thought it's like insane that we <laughs> we do that and i've also my connection to uh dogs i think has I mean, been very like defining for me like i've worked with well before i became full-time artist i worked with dogs my whole life and i've literally been around dogs since i was brought home from the hospital as a baby so i've always that that for me really like bridged that divide between like human and an animal and human non-human and seeing that they actually have like personhood and an existence and a right to life as a consequence and so i wouldn't say yeah like i i don't feel uh responsible um i don't know i mean yeah i guess i'm not going to make work about anything else like it's the only thing which really drives me and that i care about but also trying to um i don't know you go through like different stages of like being like completely hopeless and like distraught at the situation which you know is, is it okay to feel that way and then also motivated and inspired and driven to kind of do something about it but it's really hard with art making because as opposed to like i don't know tree planting or like frontline conservation it's hard to say what kind of impact it's having or what kind of uh, like there's no way to measure it really so it is I don't know i like like any artist i suppose <laughs> or any like creative person i'm like always uh kind of up and down in my uh experience of life and the ecological crisis and whether um what i'm doing is completely pointless and i should stop doing it all and just go and like plant trees somewhere <laughs> or whether i should keep doing it yeah is always a challenge um for me but I would also be useless at tree planting because I'm really weak <laughs> and pathetic. So I think maybe I'll just stick to making art about it instead. Um, but yeah. And then within my own life, I, you know, like I try and be as, I mean, I know like I try and be as like conscious as possible with like, um, like having like a plant-based diet and all that other stuff. Although I'm aware that like the reality of the ecological crisis is not like individual choice, but very much driven by, um our current economic system so i'm not kind of ignorant about that fact but yeah i don't know it's 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 a mess and i guess i'm just trying to do what i can with the skills that i have unfortunately where do you go for inspiration like what artists do you or scientists or for you know what forest do you go to where do you get your inspiration uh i'd say like uh my kind of base way of working is can i see you know I'll see a process or an image process and be like, I wonder how that would look if it was animated. Um, but beyond that, like the, the photographers or like artists that really inspired me um, and were people like Jill Enfield, like I mentioned earlier, um, Kai Lewis, who's an alternative processor, uh, Barbara Dombach, I think, another alternative processor. Um, so just a lot of um, alternative processes. I think what's good about the alternative photography space or the alternative process space compared to very traditional and essential analog photography is that it's a lot more like, um, so like traditional analog photography is very like masculine and very like tech obsessed and like, oh, look at this like 10,000 pound Leica that I've got and I can take this really sharp photo of a bird or a swan. And it's very like, you know, not bro but like, and anyways that's very off-putting for me I, I really hate i really hate that kind of stuff and so i felt a lot more like welcomed in the alternative process community because it's a lot of like it's a lot more like uh female led and just generally more accepting to like accidents and experiments and it's not about expensive equipment and stuff so generally the alternative process community um today like so those photographers inspired me at uni but today i am probably mostly inspired by like the kind of artists around me and the people that I um, work with. Um, so like I said, Hannah Fletcher, who runs the Sustainable Darkroom with me, um, Alice Kazanav, who also runs the Sustainable Darkroom as well. And then, yeah, 
those just so yeah just generally alternative processes tend to be nice people that is interesting like um trying to find people for to talk to on this podcast it's like so many women and like I wonder what it is about about cyanotype or alternative processes that is very there's a very feminine energy um what would you say about that I don't know I mean because I've because I do quite a bit of talks and teaching and stuff and what recently I did one at a trade show like a photography trade show <laughs> which you know it's like Canon and Nikon um and all the big brands and they've all got like their cameras on show and there's loads of like men like walking around with like these huge um you know and this is like indoors in a convention center which is basically like a, a glorified warehouse and they've got like ten thousand pound cameras with like you know thousand millimeter lens attached to it and it's like bro like what are you trying to take a picture of it's like we're in we're inside here so they're just like showing off their tech and it's very much just like extension of masculinity and extension of manhood and it's all about perfection and like the kind of going out and capturing this perfect image and bringing it back and stuff so there's a i'm sure there's a lot of like weird like masculine parallels you could make with that whereas i think alternative processes is a lot more just like like working with dogs as well, like and working with animals is a lot more female oriented environment. And that's something where I've, which I've done and I've always preferred it. Like it's not as competitive, like working environment and everyone's just a lot more chill and accepting and caring and like nurturing. And that maybe I'm being stereotypical here, but just from my own personal experience and like with alternative processes, I think it's the same. Like people just tend to be like really supportive and you can make mistakes and it's much more about the creativity and exploration than it is about like, you know, I got this great fast shot of a bird and it's much better than your really fast uh, shot of a bird. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure 100%, but there's definitely definitely something there. Um, yeah, but I, I couldn't pinpoint it exactly. 